Dr. Rivka Preschwartz serves as Associate Principal for General Studies and Co-Director of Machon Siach at SAR High School in the Bronx, New York, and as a Research Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She earned her PhD in History of Science from Princeton University. Dr. Schwartz has spent more than 20 years in the fields of Jewish secondary and post-secondary education. She writes and lectures widely about issues of contemporary importance in the North American Orthodox community. Dr. Schwartz, it is really a pleasure to have you on Talking Tachas today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. The truth is I say us because usually it's me and my co-host Uri. Sadly, he's not he's not here today, but I know that he, he was excited about this conversation. He, he's sad he's missing it. So the first thing that I wanted to really talk about, which is the thing that I kind of always found most interesting, is your Twitter presence. Uh, and probably some people listening are active on Twitter. Probably a lot of people listening know about Twitter, but maybe find it a waste of time, maybe find it too kind of enticing and, and Dafka stay away from it. So there, there's probably a mixed bag. But can you tell us a little bit about your experience of Twitter? Why you're so active on Twitter? Tell us about Jewish Twitter. I know there's, there's this whole like subculture from Twitter. And, and I just want to kind of hear your experience of it. So the history of my Twitter presence, my Twitter presence did not start off as anything intellectual in any way. I first got on Twitter because I work in a high school, as you said, and at some point during color war, each team got points for numbers of tweets that were tweeted with their team's hashtag. And so <laughs> I got onto Twitter for SAR High School Color War, which is mostly all that I use Twitter for for a while. I actually, at some point, SAR High School started, Color War is actually in your Twitter bio. <laughs> it is in my Twitter bio because I tweet about all kinds of intellectual and important things for a lot of the year. And then for three days a year, the only thing I tweet about <laughs> is SAR High School Color War. Um, so that was how it started. And then I actually then migrated into politics Twitter. And that was where I spent a lot of time in the mm -hmm. run up to the 2016 presidential election and around the presidential election. I was not particularly engaging with Jewish Twitter or with from Twitter. I was engaging with political scientists and journalists. I was writing about politics. I was sharing my thoughts about politics. I spent a lot of time in politics Twitter. And we could talk about that a little bit. And that definitely got a little bit hot to handle and required probably anybody who cultivates a very active social media presence at some point has to stop and take stock and calibrate about what they're saying and thinking about their audience and thinking about their real life um, responsibilities and what they're saying on social media. But that definitely did require at certain points recalibration on my part. And then over time, as I wrote about stuff that I thought was um, important and valuable, I started writing about stuff that I thought was important and valuable in the Jewish community and the from community on Twitter as well. There was a time earlier on where if I wanted to address the Orthodox community, I went to Facebook. I have a Facebook account that's almost dormant, but every so often I go back because that was mm -hmm. where I saw more of the uh, from communal conversation taking place. And then I, I don't know if it developed over these years or I just plugged into more a sort of intellectual Orthodox communal conversation happening on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and that's where I've been spending more of my time. Right. There definitely is some overlap. Like I often see people on Facebook who start conversation and then say, oh, go look at Twitter. You know, that's where the activity is going on and things like that. And there's a lot of movement. And there's also a, this whole other side, which is Instagram, which is maybe a little bit less heavy, but there is still a huge sort of from culture there, um, but probably in a very different direction. And I have been noticing that over the past few days and week, especially as everything been going on in Afghanistan, you've been getting much more into that conversation. So, uh, so it's not like, you started in political Twitter and then moved over to the Jewish world, it seems like there's a lot more overlap. Yeah, I, t I talk about both. It's just that it was almost exclusively American politics for a while. 
again, to the extent that if I had something that I wanted to say to a from conversation, I specifically went to Facebook to say it. And now I'll carry on both of those conversations uh, mm-hmm. Twitter. And I do sometimes think about the fact that there are people following me from one community. If you're following me from the Jewish Twitter community, you might just have no interest in what I say about politics. If you're following me from the world of politics, there might be stuff that I post in from Twitter that you have no idea what I'm saying or what the words mean. Right. Yeah, that's actually really funny to think about. Um, one of the things that I kind of noticed and I would love to kind of hear more about is that in both, at least for, from my perspective, as very much a lurker and an amateur who is not particularly involved, just like to read, um, in both political Twitter, quote unquote, and Jewish Twitter, quote unquote, the vast majority of people who are involved in these conversations seems to be men vast majority. So I'm kind of curious, A, do you agree with that assessment or are we getting kind of different takes or are we seeing different uh, different actual people? And B, if you do agree, I'm wondering how you feel as a woman who's actively involved in these conversations, if you ever see gender, if you ever feel different, if it makes you uncomfortable or you totally don't notice anything there. I'm wondering kind of how, how you feel about the whole thing. Okay, I think, I think I'm answering the second question first, although they'll probably end up blurring together <laughs> a little bit in terms of my comfort level. I speak with a very assertive voice. You might have noticed that. I'm hearing it that already. Is something, that is something <laughs> I do in real life, not just on Twitter. <laughs> um, so I am comfortable with the hurly-burly of the Twitter conversation. Um, I don't know that I particularly consciously notice that most of my interlocutors, either on politics Twitter or on from Twitter or Jewish Twitter, were men. I certainly, that didn't bother me because... For a while, it was less clear who I am before I posted my bio. There were people who assumed I was a man on Twitter just because of the way that I talk. Um, I will say also, <laughs> if you're expressing your It's true, your name is not there. It's, it's your initials. So now it's very clear who I am. I use my first name and my last name. I post things connected to me. In the beginning, I think I probably did that last. There were people who followed me who knew who I was and people who saw my tweets who didn't necessarily know who I am. Um, in terms of the, the lack of presence of women, I'm going to talk now especially about Jewish Twitter and from Twitter. Mm-hmm. I will say that I'm less interested in people saying, oh, there are no women out there. Sure, there are. Go find them, right? Cultivate your Twitter feed. Don't have your Twitter feed be an accident. There are loads I could list now, you know, probably 10 women in from Twitter or Jewish Twitter who are really worth your time to follow. Um, and if you want to find them, you certainly can. So they might not be the most obvious or the loudest voices. There certainly are women who are active and whose voices are out there and you can find them. In terms of my experience around gendering, I absolutely have that experience on Twitter. The phenomenon of mansplaining, as it is called, is very real. Uh, that is, a man will explain to you either why they know more about your, your particular area of expertise than they do. So you've spent years and years studying a topic, and they, with no background knowledge or, ex- or experience in the topic, will come along and tell you why they know more than you do. And or, and this I find in particular, when I talk about certain experiences of being a from woman, men will explain to me why that is not, in fact, the experience of from women. Sometimes they bother with them. My wife doesn't think that way. Okay, that's mm-hmm. great. Your wife is not also women. <laughs> Sometimes they don't even bother with that. They just let me know that that is not the experience of from women because reasons. Um, my man, I am telling you about my lived experience of, you know, almost 45 years of being a from woman. And you are telling me that doesn't happen. So, yeah. Um I sometimes try to engage with these things. It depends how much it sounds like somebody is engaging in good faith, trying to understand. It depends how much vilification comes along with it. Um, So sometimes I engage more and sometimes I engage less. 
And also as part of the recalibration and the boundaries, um, I don't tweet from school during the school day. I don't tweet during the work day. And so, and I do tweet mm -hmm. early in the morning, which is when I wake up. So very often what will happen is I'll get up in the morning, I'll post something, I'll get a good, you know, knockdown, drag out fight going. People will say things and then, sorry, it's seven o'clock. I got to pack up and go out to school. <laughs> And sometimes I come back to two or three days later, and sometimes I don't because it's stale and there's no point. Um, but that's something that happens with some degree of regularity. And do you feel like the people who are kind of engaging in the arguments specifically are more often men? Like, yes, there is this phenomenon of men who are kind of doing this ex explaining, but do you find that in general engagement is higher among men or do you not really see gender there? That's hard for me to say. And again, I think probably the people who follow me on Twitter and engage with me on Twitter are a self-selecting group. There's certainly a lot of women I engage with regularly on Twitter, also plenty of men, but not not something that I see as being lopsided particularly. Mm -hmm. It's actually calling to mind for me the the Bechdel test, you know, the that mm -hmm. test for sure. for film and culture in general. Um, two women engaging in a topic with no discussion of men, and I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering how much that you know. I, the truth is that I just don't see it as often as maybe, you know, I, I don't see them talking about men, but I don't see women in general. Too often, I feel like their voices are either drowned out or their voices aren't there in the first place. And and I am among that, I think, lurking majority. So it's not, I, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm, you know, it's just, an, it's just something that I, I feel like I'm seeing. You know, again, I, I don't know if you want, if you want the rundown or the list. Avital Chizik Goldschmidt is a yeah, of course. journalist who posts a lot. Um, Maharat Rory Pickernice from St. Louis, mm -hmm. from woman, member of the clergy, posts a lot. Ravdanya Ruttenberg is a rabbi who's putting all kinds of interesting theological content out on Twitter all the time. Professor Shana Weiss at Brandeis, Professor Hannah Leibowitz at one of the University of Texas schools, uh, Tima Smith, who, who writes a lot about a lot of stuff about Jews of color, mm -hmm. Abigail Halperin, who's a rabbinical student at Hadar. These right. are some of the women. This is not any kind of comprehensive list. And if, you, if you're one of the no, women of I course, follow who follows course. me and I didn't list your name, <laughs> I apologize. There's nothing comprehensive about this list. It's just here are loads of women, not just who are prolific um, social media posters, but who are experts in particular areas sharing their expertise on Twitter. So if you want to learn about Israeli pop culture, that is your thing. Right. Shana Weiss has a doctorate in this and teaches about this and is happy to illuminate everything you ever needed to know about contemporary Israeli media and culture right. um, on, on Twitter. So there are lots of people you can learn lots of stuff from and lots of women in particular right. you can learn lots of stuff from. Add, add all of these people. I'm, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm seeing them every day. So if yeah. people aren't seeing them in their Twitter feed, so follow them. Right. Um, I, one of the and one of the things that I'm noting about those women, all of whom are phenomenal, is I think all of them has written have written prolifically about the same phenomenon of sort of putting themselves out there and writing their expertise and then being spoken down to of sort of like let me explain to you how this works. And these are women who are really experts in, in their field. We, we've interviewed a few of them on Talking Tachlis. Um, so I guess now let's dive into the specifics because one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you, and we mentioned this on the show a few weeks ago, is you had a really, really, to me, eye-opening uh, Twitter thread about um, Jacob Steinmetz and the other, I'm not sure if you talked about both of them or if this is right after Jacob Steinmetz, but he was the modern Orthodox high school student recent graduate who was just drafted into the MLB and uh, his shul had posted a congratulations wishing him mazel tov upon being drafted and it's very exciting obviously and I want to I, I want you in your own words to talk about that Twitter thread and then I would love to discuss it and kind of hear reactions to it 
Okay, so this was particularly about that young man who was drafted, not about Ellie Klingman, the other young man who was drafted, because there's a very important distinction there, which is that Ellie Klingman made his way to the MLB draft without playing on Chavez, and Jacob Steinmetz has played on Chavez, is open about the fact he plays on Chavez, and he intends to keep playing on Chavez. Mm-hmm. I am not anybody's rabbi. I am not a rabbi. I am not anybody's rabbi. I am not here <laughs> to from shame anybody. I am not here to tell anybody they're doing anything wrong. None of that is in my interest. Jacob Steinmetz should, you do you, and Ellie Klingman, you do you, and each one of us is making our own choices. This is about thinking about us as a community. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time thinking about us as a community. I need a backup for a second, okay? I am a committed Orthodox Jew. Orthodox Judaism is, Judaism is meaningful to me particularly, by which I mean it's not just an accident of birth or how I was raised. It is an affirmative choice. Mm-hmm. It is also a complicated set of commitments to hold, well, specifically modern orthodoxy, which is the version of orthodoxy that I profess. It is a complicated set of commitments to hold because it means that I believe that there is value, there are things to learn, there is wisdom in the broader world, and that I have to bring that in to bear on how I am a Jew in the world, and also I am committed to the observance of halacha, which doesn't always fit neatly or nicely with those values and commitments from the broader world. In that context, it is not, I'm not saying any chidushim, I'm not saying anything new that you don't know before, to say the biggest issue challenge in our day. It's not the origin of the text of the Torah, although we can have interesting conversations about the origin of the text of the Torah. And it's not the commandment to eradicate Amalek, although we can have a whole theoretical discussion about the commandment <laughs> to eradicate Amalek. Right? These are not the issues that are keeping people from the issue is the lack of egalitarianism in Orthodox Judaism. I find it's particularly troubling to my students and to other young people when it comes to LGBT people. I often wonder why they aren't quite as troubled by the lack of egalitarianism when it comes to women. That in itself is a separate interesting conversation. Lack of egalitarianism in other ways. And then it's more broad, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain ways in which um, there are all kinds of different status distinctions within Judaism. Cohen Levy Israel is a status distinction. Mm -hmm. Obviously, moms there is a very significant status distinction. A woman who's divorced in certain halachic respects is not the same as a woman who was never married or who was widowed. There are all kinds of different halachic distinctions. We are not egalitarian as a system of religious law. Great. Mm -hmm. That's a tough pill to swallow for Western contemporary people. That's a tough thing to think about and process to subscribe to a religious system that treats people differently based on all of these different facets of their birth, their nature, their life experience, whatever it is. Okay. In the right-wing world, in the Haredi world, you're going to get an answer. The Torah is Torah. Halacha is halacha. And if it makes you uncomfortable, the problem is you. Get yourself right with God and then you won't be uncomfortable anymore. Okay. Mm-hmm. obviously, if you are to the left of orthodoxy, you rapidly enter into egalitarian spaces in which they say, you're right, these distinctions are problematic, we're no longer going to honor them. However, we understand that in terms of Jewish text, Jewish law, Jewish history, we're not going to abide by these distinctions. And then you're modern orthodox and you're sitting with this and you're saying, I really feel for my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, but the halacha is the halacha, what can I do? And one of the things that often gets said is, but what can we do? The halacha binds us. Certain things are simply not permitted. Certain things are simply prohibited. As much as I feel your pain, that I cannot recognize your marriage, as much as I feel your pain, that your halachic status, as much as I, and I I do, and I empathize deeply, but what can I do? My hands are tied, right? That may or may not be a compelling argument. You might buy that. You might not buy that. But here is the thing. Your hands are tied about Shabbos observance also. 
That's also, I'm pretty sure I remember from my base Yaakov days, that Shabbos observance is pretty high up on our list of big things that matter for Orthodox Jews. I think I'm remembering mm-hmm. that correctly. <laughs> and if we are ready, as a shul, as a religious institution, to publicly congratulate somebody who is very open. I'm not digging into his past and finding his secrets. He is very open. This is written in articles in the newspaper. You can all go find the same articles I found. Who is very open about his decision to play baseball on Shabbos. And you're willing to send out an email wishing mazel tov to his parents on this, then I said, I think we have to think about when we send out an email, or when we, sorry, decline to send out an email, when the gay young man in shul gets engaged, and we can't wish you a mazel tov, because what can we do? Our hands are tied. Halachically, I wish I could, but I can't, or I feel your pain, at least. Maybe not I wish I could. I feel your pain, but I can't. That kind of rings a little hollow. I have more to say about this, but I've been talking for a while, so maybe there's something you want to say before. I, I think I, yeah. that was great. I think that was a that was a really clear synopsis, and I was really struck when I read your uh, when I read the Twitter thread. So first of all, about comparisons, I took a class. I did a doctorate in the history of science. Random thing has nothing to do with what I do in my life right now. I took a class in graduate school about models and modeling. Right. So whenever you use a model, you are in some way saying this could be compared to that. When we do studies in mouse genetics, we give cancer to mice to study human cancer, right? We are accepting that a model is a good, a mouse, sorry, is a good model for cancer in people. And then that's a whole question of whether it is or whether it isn't. So we study Mm -hmm. flatworms and mice and all kinds of things in this class in graduate school. So if you don't like my model or my comparison, that's perfectly fine. I'm not, you know, every model clarifies certain things and obscures certain things. And maybe it's a good model. Maybe it's not. But you got to make a good case for why it's not a good model. And here's mm-hmm. the case people made that I thought was a bad case. And then I'll tell you what I think is the better case. The bad case was I got a whole bunch of very learned men all of a sudden explaining to me why you could play baseball on Shabbos without maybe technically violating any de'oraita prohibitions. And he says, he gets, <laughs> Simon gets a ride to the ballpark. He does, sorry, I said that backwards. He walks to the ballpark. He doesn't get a ride to the ballpark. And he this, and then he that. And you could do this, and you could not do that. And we could do the hokey pokey. The whole business, okay? And that's what I got from a whole bunch of from men. Hashtag not all from men, but I got that from a bunch of men. <laughs> and here's what I want to say about that. That, too, is a manifestation of privilege. Because some people get the halachic hokey pokey, and some don't. Right. Some get every limud l'kapschus, every possible justification we right. can marshal or muster, every possible rereading of text and law to find a way to permit their actions, and some people don't. I'm bracketing by saying I personally do not find these halachic rereadings compelling. I want to say this to you. I'm not arguing for these halachic rereadings, but there are some in the Orthodox community who are trying to do rereadings of the famous verse from Leviticus to tell you that what it prohibits are not the committed relationships of gay men today, that it meant to prohibit some kind of exploitative sexual relationship in the context of cult whatever, Mm -hmm. okay? And the overwhelming majority of from Jews say, oh, that's totally not compelling. That kind of, oh, the Pasuk doesn't mean this, the Pasuk means that, come on, do me a favor. We all know what it means, right? Okay, but I think it's worth stepping back and saying, who gets the benefit of the doubt? Who gets the rereading? Who gets the creative interpretation? All of a sudden, I have a whole bunch of from men super eager to explain to me why playing baseball on Shabbos is not really a halachic issue. And let's just say I find that not compelling. And then when I said, dudes, you're explaining to me why somebody who works on Shabbos, he works for pay, right? He's going to go to Major League Baseball. That's working for pay on Shabbos. That's something he should be publicly congratulated for. We do not generally publicly celebrate people 
who publicly announced their intention to go to work on Shabbos, I had somebody saying to me, what do you mean rabbis and cantors? I'm like, okay, please, right? Yes, yes. Because <laughs> rabbis work on Shabbos. Clearly, that means that we as a community celebrate people who go to work for pay on Shabbos. That, to me, is not only is it super not compelling, but I actually think it just reinforces my point. Who gets the benefit of all of our halacha creativity and rereading and reinterpretation and minimization? And whom do we say, nope, sorry, bad news? What's the, what's the pushback that I find compelling? The pushback I find compelling is like, Rivka, you're hoist on your own petard. Exactly what you said now, which is the difficult issue today is non-egalitarianist. That is the point of pain for people to be orthodox. And that's why it's so important that this is the place where we hold the line. And Shabbos might have been that point. Shabbos observance might have been that point in America 100 or 120 years ago. But it's not that point right now. And our community is going to be fine if random assorted individuals at the fringes quietly go to work on Shabbos. That's not going to undermine the enterprise. And, and recognizing egalitarianness in any of its various manifestations is going to undermine the enterprise. That to me is a much more honest critique and true critique of what I said. Mm -hmm. And I grant the validity of that in the sense that that's what we're fighting about or not fighting about. That's not really the right word. That's what's contested here. What's contested here is how much space can we make for various egalitarianisms without undermining this enterprise of orthodoxy? Or can we not? We have to say, as the Haredi world says, sorry, tough, right? This is so that to me is a is a much more compelling critique. When so so can to, I just can I just I, I want to just make sure that I'm following it a hundred percent because I I think I agree with you that it's a that's a strong critique, but I just want to make sure I understand it. So basically, I think what you're saying is that there might be a serum involved in playing baseball on Shabbos. There might be a serum involved in being in an LGBTQ marriage, but we're not really talking about the serum involved in these individual people or in these situations. What we're talking about is whether there's something that is a danger to the institution of orthodoxy or even of modern orthodoxy specifically, that tiny narrow um, window. And we're not worried that the community is going to enter these really difficult conversations and potentially even fall apart because there are kids playing baseball on Shabbos, even though there might be blatantly serum involved. But we are much more worried because LGBTQ individuals and marriages, etc., have much more potential to blow the whole thing open because it is actually something that we are so concerned about in society in general and in the modern Orthodox community specifically. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I want to just be very clear that that's not me speaking. That is me yes, yes, yes. <laughs> for what I think is the most compelling critique. Because okay. that really is about exactly, yes, how do we navigate this crucial tension that we're living with right now? But when you say that, when you start with, oh, no, here's a chuva. Well, somebody said to me, here's a source sheet about playing baseball on Shabbos. Okay, dude, we're not talking about playing <laughs> baseball on Shabbos. We're talking about going to work on Shabbos for pay playing baseball on Shabbos, that's not the same thing as whether kids on your block can go outside on Shabbos, right? That's not the same conversation. And again, for whom do you try to find every possible leniency? But yes, what you just said, I think, is the compelling and valid pushback or critique. Um, but in that case, we should be honest about what we're saying. 
then we're not saying it's a halachic issue and what can I do? I can't recognize your marriage because it's a halachic issue. We're saying something that's probably much harder and much more painful to say to the LGBT community. Or I'll say again, I, I'd like to bring women back into this conversation or to women about certain issues. We're saying making more space for you in whatever way in our community is fundamentally a threat to our community. And therefore, we need to hold the line in certain ways. And if that's the conversation that we're having, let's have it. But when it you almost hang feels like on, what you're... Sorry, go ahead. If you hang your hat on halacha and then come to me to explain why the halacha doesn't prohibit working on Shabbos, I'm probably not going to be so impressed. It almost sounds like you're saying um, that it's almost too valid, which is why we have, and when I say valid, I don't mean in terms of halachic legitimacy. I mean valid in terms of like, no, there is something really compelling and important about it. And that's why we have to hold the, hold the line even more carefully. Yeah, I think, I think for, again, different, I'm going to put my historian's hat on now for a minute. I it want you to put your, your personal hat on it. I want to hear what you think. Oh, we could get I feel like you're talking a lot about like like a sociology and community. I want to hear more about what you, what you think. I actually describe myself as a sociologist of the Orthodox community without a license. I never took sociology <laughs> class in my life, so now that's what I do all the time. Um, but no, but my historian's hat actually has to do with what I think because half of mm-hmm. me is a 21st century Western American person with my own values and identity very much shaped by that experience. I got a very good education in college and in graduate school. It shaped the way I think about and engage with the world. So that's half of me. And the other half of me is an historian, which means that I know that the ways that I think about the world are culturally contingent. They depend on the society, mm-hmm. community, time setting in which I live. That a hundred years ago, a different set of beliefs and commitments would have been totally obviously true to people. Beliefs and commitments that I might find wrong or deeply problematic or just pointless. And the the beliefs and commitments that I hold would have made no sense to them. So I have a hard time, even as I feel it myself, the other half of my brain has a hard time saying, this is the one obviously true way, and therefore we have to accommodate Torah, Halacha, Judaism to the one obviously true way, because I know that 100 years ago, a different set of obviously true things demanded that we accommodate Torah, Halacha, Judaism to them, and those things don't look totally obvious to us right now. So I will give you a, here's a, a metaphor, a mushal, a model, uh, which you could buy or not buy. Um, but I, I like fashion, I like clothing. And um, one of the things I feel strongly getting back to gender is that men, when they speak, will use football metaphors all the time or sports metaphors, like everybody understands them. Like that's shave l'chol method. There's, have you ever seen the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? No. There's, it's a, it's a musical comedy show. It's very funny. They, and there's one particular song about this phenomenon of sort of like these two men don't understand each other and suddenly they switch into sports metaphors and they, they walk away best friends. Now it happens to be funny because I am a sports fan of many sports. Can't Same. Football. Do not understand football at all. Oh, I like Still football. don't know what a first down is. And I'm a reasonably smart person. I'm almost 45 years old. If I haven't figured out what a first down is by now, I'm never going to know what a first down is. And when we'll, catch start, we'll catch a game. We'll catch a game. I'm watching a whole bunch of adult men get CTE and die miserable deaths. It's not my day of a good time. Well, that's yeah, that's fair. Because I'm a big hockey fan. That makes no sense. But anyway. <laughs> um, but so menu sports metaphors, I'm, I'm like losing myself here. Menu sports metaphors all the time, like everybody gets it. So I, as a woman, I'm going to use fashion metaphors like everybody gets it. And if you do, you do it. If you don't, you don't. <laughs> so here are two things you can wear. Okay. You can wear the perfectly tailored navy blue Chanel blazer. 
and the perfectly tailored white blouse. And at no time will you be the cutting edge of fashion. And at every time will you be impeccably well-dressed. Mm-hmm. Or you can wear the hot pink Alexander McQueen blazer with this, what they call the strong shoulders, which means these like pointy shoulders that like Star Trek costumes or something extend out mm-hmm. past your own <laughs> shoulders. And this season, you are the absolute height of absolute fashion. And next season, you look like a total goofball. So there is a piece of me that wants to be careful that what we're doing to orthodoxy is not turning it into the Alexander McQueen strong-shouldered blazer mm-hmm. in which we so tailor it to our contemporary understandings of things that 40 years from now, it sounds ridiculous. I, I really go back and read any kind of, you know, the contemporary religious issues of our times thing from 50 or 100 years ago. And you're like, what? Who, who even? What even? What are these? About most of them. I won't say all of them, but most of them. Um, and Can so, you actually give yeah. some examples to, to flesh that out and try to think through? There was a point, okay, sorry, going to be a starting science, 1859, Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species, and this becomes a huge brouhaha. What does this mean for religion? How do we understand this religiously? What do we do with this? Catholics respond one way, Protestants respond another way, Jews respond all kinds of different ways. I don't find this to be a burning or compelling issue for most people today. People arrive at whatever understandings they arrive at. Most modern Orthodox people have arrived at some understanding that allows for some kind of reconciliation of science and Torah, or they don't, or in their own heads, they answer it the way they answer it. But whatever you do with that, I don't find that that's a thing keeping people up at night. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me that it's not the thing, pe- it's not the thing that keeps people up at night, but I think that's because that we have a community we as a community, by and large, have made the decision that we are comfortable going forward with it and calling that a halachic non-starter. Meaning, if we had made the decision as a community that, no, we are rejecting that, then I think that would have brought the Orthodox community in a total, or the modern Orthodox community, in a completely different direction. And we would, we, people like me and you, I don't want to speak for you, but p- people like me would say, okay, clearly this is not a movement that is engaging seriously with the issues of our day, and therefore I, I'm not going to take the movement seriously. Like, I, I, it's true that it's not keeping people up at night, but that's, I think, because we've made the decision. D- does that? Yes and no, because you could have made the decision to accept Gerald Schroeder's argument about relativistic space-time, so it's 6,000 years from this vantage point, and it's however many billion years from that vantage point. Or you could make the decision to accept the argument that God created the world as though it were four and a half billion years old, and so all the fossils and the geology and the whatever was in place. Or you could accept the argument that no, science gives a perfect accounting of everything that happened, and Torah is not meant to give us an historical accounting, it's just meant to, to give us lessons, and you don't actually have to I have to accept anything in the Torah as being, you know, historically valid narrative until Avram Avinu or Mamad Arsini or wherever you want to be historically valid narrative start. Mm -hmm. Um, If we had at some point sort of tried to lock down that this is what the Torah means and there's this one way to read it that was compatible with whatever in 1870 or 1890 or 1910 or 1930 we thought was the right way to read these things, then we would find ourselves, I actually found someone who did this, and it was super interesting, very early 20th century um, English writer commenting on, on Chumash, on Bereshit, and, and talking about it um, relative to whatever issues of science they were talking about in a way that's now you know, clearly dated and irrelevant. But that mm-hmm. never became the, we're all signed on for this program, so we can, right. we can kind of keep on rolling with it. Right. Um, but there's a difference the between issue. locking down an answer and not engaging with the issue. Like, we can say we don't know what the right answer is for LGBTQ, but and, and we're, we're going to continue to grapple with it maybe for the next hundred, maybe for the next thousand years. But we can't say 
we're going to not try to think about it. We're not going to try to say this is a serious, serious thing that our community needs to engage with. You know, what I, you, I don't know. Yeah, so well, I, I don't think that's the thing I'm, you're making, though. Yeah, yeah, sorry, continue. No, if you want to know where I am personally, that's exactly where I am personally. And again, I'll say again what I said before, which is I'm not just committed to halacha or commit. People sometimes, you know, like what's orthodoxy value to you? Yes, orthodoxy is a value to me. You could have a different conversation why that specific affiliation is meaningful to me. It's not just about halachic observance in, in whatever form it takes or I'm post-denominational. I'm specifically orthodox. That means exactly what you're saying, which is that I am living with, and I'm not living oblivious to the contradictions or the questions or the difficulties Absolutely. or the challenges. Right. Again, not about LGBTQ issues and not about women's issues and not about the various other ways. I want to be very clear um, about the various other inegalitarianisms. That's not a word, but I guess it is now embedded <laughs> in the halachic system. Um, but I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about what our community can do to address them. I'm thinking about what our community has to do to address them, what our community has to do to embrace um, all of the people who are in it, all of its members. Um, that is very much where I want to be sitting and what I want to be doing. What I do not want to be doing is walking around saying, la, 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 I can't hear you, I have a banana right. in my ear, which certain segments of the community think if we just, like, I don't know what, ignore LGBTQ Orthodox groups, they're going to go away. And I don't know, if we ignore women, they're all going to be fine with everything. So that all, you know, is, is that that is very much where I'm living or where I'm sitting or what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways in which that's not simple. Um, and it's not halakhically simple. It's not emotionally simple. I'm not sure it's intellectually simple. And there are plenty of people who tell you it's not worth doing from both sides. Why are you expending all this energy to make this work this way? Just become egalitarian, call it a day, and your whole life's going to make sense. Or why are you expending all this energy when all you're doing is kind of undermining the halakhic value system? What you really should do, as we said earlier, is figure out why you're letting your value system be shaped by anything mm -hmm. outside of Torah. This is much more the perspective of the world in which I was raised and the world in which my siblings still live. Get your value system right with God, and then you won't have any more questions that are troubling you. So, I, so to, to, to follow up from that specifically, I want to ask you a question that I think you're already kind of answering, but I want to kind of hear more explicitly your perspective. I, I want to understand, how do you personally deal with what you see as serious clashes between halacha and what you see as right? And I know that I, I, it's all about sort of threading that needle, and there might not be sort of one pat answer, but, but what do you do with, with the things that, that do keep you up at night? How do you actually handle that with God, with yourself, with your community? So that is a very good question. I've been telling people for a while that's a major research project that I've been working on for Machon Siach, the research arm of SAR High School that, as you mentioned, I work for, and mm -hmm. that I've been writing something about. And I think at some point people are going to like, okay, you keep telling us you're writing this thing when you <laughs> finish it. Eventually, we got to see the results. Rabbi Tilly Artsark, my boss at SAR and at Machon Siach, would also like to know when I'm going to finish writing this thing and <laughs> see it. Um, and it's very much about... The, the, the kind of personal, not just the intellectual, ideological, philosophical, but the personal sort of sitting with that. I'll say a few things. I don't have an answer. If you're waiting for the comprehensive, here is the answer to life, the universe, and everything tied up with a bow, I'm about to not give it to you. All right. Maybe um, we'll have to do a part two for that one. <laughs> yeah, right. At which point I'll have all the answers to the universe. <laughs> I'll say a few things. One is it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to push back against communities and structures and systems that you see as deeply meaningful and valuable, but also to challenge. 
it's okay to live with open-ended questions. Like, you know, my kids in high school want me to give them all the answers to everything. And that the, even in the age of Google, it does not work that way. We don't always get all the answers to everything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things that we don't have the answers to when we're 20, we have the answers to by the time we're 40. Sometimes we don't, but we've just moved on to be troubled by other questions. And those questions no longer bother us the way they did because we are thinking about other things right now. Sometimes the community moves places, and that I think is an important thing to also point out and say, whether we're talking about women or LGBTQ issues or any of these things, where the community is compared to where the community was 25 years ago, and here I'm talking specifically about the modern Orthodox community, sure. um, it's it immeasurably different even in the mainstream institutions of the community, really immeasurable how much difference there is. Um, I'm an institutionalist. Maybe I'm an institutionalist just because I'm middle-aged. Maybe I'm an institutionalist because I'm an institutionalist, I would rather walk these things a little bit more slowly and get someplace where we can bring the community or more of the community along and push these things harder and blow things up, understanding perfectly well that there's a real human cost to that approach. I'm not, I'm not minimizing or denying that. Right. That means there are people right now for whom certain needs are not going to be met because I'm going to say rather than move fast and break stuff, as people say in Silicon Valley... Mm -hmm. I'd like to move slower and keep the community together. Um, and again, I have skin in this game. There are issues in which I am on the downside of some of these communal inegalitarianisms. And I, too, am, am accepting that the slow walkingness is going to cost either me or people I care very much about. Um, and other people right. can say, Riffa, you're wrong to accept the slow walking. Great. Sure. I'm not, I'm not acting like this is the only prescription. But you asked me how I think about it, and that right. certainly is a piece of it. A piece of it is there are some things that I can't necessarily change. God gets to tell me to do things I don't like, and if I don't understand God, okay, if I could understand God, I could be God. So, right, that's what the Rambam says. I can't understand God. Another another piece of it is the community is changing. Wait, I'm sorry. Before, before, you, go on, before you go on to the next piece, I, I just – and I'm not even pushing back. I'm just wondering, as you were describing that, I feel like I related very strongly to it. But at the same time, there feels like a difference between for, – for, there are ways in which I feel like – and I'm speaking very personally right now. There are ways in which I might feel like, okay, like I don't understand the answer, but that's something that like I need to figure out and I need to deal with. And like things might change, things might not. But I but, – but what about – I'm not the one who's suffering most, even though, fine, there are ways in which, like, I might be a little bit, you know, like, I, I'm a woman, I'm like, whatever, all of those things. But, like, it's harder for me to feel like other people are in pain and I'm sort of like, okay, you know, it's complicated and it's a struggle. Like, it, it, that, that to me feels like what's the hardest thing. I, I don't feel like right by myself saying that almost. Like, that feels really, really difficult. So you're getting into an interesting piece of the conversation. I have talked sometimes about the lack in the modern Orthodox world of an ethic of sacrifice. Sacrifice means that to be a from Jew means sometimes you have to give stuff up. And when I say this, I've mm -hmm. gotten very strong pushback because people in the modern Orthodox world think that sacrifice means basically LGBTQ people shouldn't be fully enfranchised in the community or maybe LGBTQ people and women shouldn't be free. And that's what you mean by sacrifice. You mean somebody else has to suffer for the good of whatever collective. Right. Like I, I can sacrifice is, myself, but I feel much more nervous sacrificing other people. What I've said to people is one of the things I certainly took with me from the world in which I was raised was that there was a much more broad-based ethic of sacrifice. The idea was that God asked you to live this way and not another way. And a lot of people had to give up a lot to live this way. I am not arguing. Can I start with this disclaimer? I am mm -hmm. not <laughs> arguing 
that LGBTQ people don't have it harder than other people do. Of course they do. I'm not arguing that women don't have it harder in orthodoxy than men do, right? But in a in a chunk of orthodoxy in which, and and there are certain ways. So for example, women have in certain ways have more latitude and opportunity in that world than men do, because men are really expected both to devote themselves as close to full-time as possible to the study of Torah and to shield themselves from any possibility of sexual exposure or temptation, which means that women can get more education, even if you think that education is limited compared to the education you get. Women can get more education, more professional opportunity, and even in certain ways, more mm-hmm. access to the world. And men are much more cut off from access to the world because of what they're supposed to be doing you know, with their Torah learning and what they're not supposed to be exposing themselves to in terms of um, inappropriate but it's funny because the example that I always give when I talk about this lack of ethic of sacrifice is exactly that when I was a child growing up, the story they would tell is of whoever who did whatever, and then it came to the point of a conflict between activity whatever and Shabbos. And so they gave up activity whatever mm-hmm. to keep Shabbos. When I started college, I was an undergrad, still very much coming from and rooted in that world. I was given the chance to participate in a moot court, like a mock trial competition. Mm-hmm. And I, I was over Shabbos. I said, I can't. And my professor said, my professor said, we'll put you in a hotel that's, uh, that's close to the competition venue and you'll be able to walk and you won't have to write. She was very well aware mm-hmm. of what Shabbos meant. And at that point in my life, I was like, can't do it. Of course I won't do it. It's Shabbos. I'm not walking and I'm not competing without writing and I'm not anything. It's Shabbos. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the stories. Uh, those were the success stories of my youth. The success stories of the modern Orthodox world are the basketball team or the mock trial team was supposed to compete on Shabbos and they got the competition. They convinced them to change. Yeah. So they could do both. The modern Orthodox world success stories are not stories of sacrifice for keeping Shabbos because Shabbos is more important than the mock trial competition or the basketball game. Our success stories of keeping Shabbos are we could do both. Both and is the value proposition of modern Orthodoxy with the added obvious detail of what we were discussing earlier that maybe now it's just, and we did it on Shabbos, but yay us because we won an Olympic medal or we got drafted by MLB. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that vindicates that decision. And so I think in a world in which there isn't a sense that sacrifice is a broad-based expectation of all Jews because in the service of God, we may be asked to do things that are very hard for us or not do things that seem important to us. Then it's like, why, why? is only a small subset of the community being asked to sacrifice. Right. Um, and in a, in a world in which we all just understand that all of us have to sacrifice things in order to serve God properly, then maybe there's context for that or that makes more sense. Again, without minimizing that some people clearly are being asked to sacrifice more than other people. I'm not taking that away. I, I think I've said that enough times that I hope that it's clear. But I do think that in the Haredi world, there is a more broad-based ethic of sacrifice for the sake of Torah observance, halakhic observance, Judaism, I think in the modern Orthodox world, there is affirmatively an ethic of both and, of having it all. And then when we show up and say, oh, whoopsie doopsie, you, you have to sacrifice. Like, mm-hmm. Wait, why just me? In a way that right. engenders much more um, resistance. So that's as far as your question of, that. that's a non-answer, I guess, your question of sacrifice and just a way that I see it landing differently in this community's conversation than it would have in the conversation of the community in which I grew up. Again, it's a valid critique. Somebody who says the only way to do this is to push as hard as we can, as fast as we can, because people are being hurt every day. Again, that's 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 one set of assumptions based off of one set of things you're looking at. Obviously, if you believe that the halacha is immovable on certain questions, 
that God's commandments are not flexible on certain issues, then that lands you someplace else, granted that not everybody thinks that. And also, if you think that holding the Orthodox community together is, is a significant value, so that's, but that's always going to get the pushback of your valuing institutions more than individuals' lives. Yes. I don't, and, I don't who, and who are we even wait, calling wait, wait, the community and the institution? This. Yeah. I just have to clarify this. I don't mean, yes, I'm valuing institutions more than people's lives. I mean, yes, that is always yes. different. <laughs> it's going to be level. Right. That's a, that's a good point. And it's also kind of like talking about the holding together the community and the way that you hold together the community is by shutting some people out of the community. Look, it's not, I, I'm, I, I had, again, any comparison I use is going to be, I think, offensive to LGBTQ people who say, my intimate relationships are not being recognized. My marriage is not being recognized. Nothing right. you're talking about as an Orthodox woman is comparable. It is. It isn't. Things are, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really. Um, well, everything is comparable. They're just not equal. I'm not, I, I'm not also interested, you know, like that playing that out is not, I don't think the direction I want to go in. But in the 1950s, the define, one of the defining fights of Orthodoxy was the Mechitza and Shul. Mm-hmm. There were Orthodox shuls in the 50s without machitza, and various Orthodox institutional groups made a big push that shuls had to have machitzas, and gradually they pushed out of the big Orthodox umbrella organizations any shuls without machitzas. So they were saying separating men and women in prayer with everything that means and implies and brings with it is a constitutive defining part of Orthodoxy. Somebody might say today that these, you know, all kinds of traditionalism around sex, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity marriage are the constitutive elements of orthodoxy today. Um, I would I would argue for as much space as we can make within the parameters of halacha, whether that's for LGBTQ Jews or women, granting the parameters of halacha, what's the maximum amount of space we can make, understanding that different ones of us will think differently both about the parameters of halacha and what's the maximum amount of space we can make. Um, of course. <laughs> All of these are like the variables in the sentence that like you can... <laughs> you know, that are not as uh, clear-cut as we want them to be, unfortunately. But there are certain questions about about broadly the approach. And I think that an approach of what's the yeah. maximum amount of space we can make is a different approach than the approach of we have to hold the line. Um, and we have to hold the line would definitely not be my approach. Uh, not that my approach, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not a communal policymaker, I'm not any of those things. But All the disclaimers. My, <laughs> all the disclaimers. My inclination would not be, uh, we have to hold the line approach. And certainly, certainly, and this is where I, where I, you know, try to go in that Twitter thread, we have to be honest about what our project is and what we're up to. If we say that what our project is, is scrupulous adherence to halacha, even I'm so sorry, even I'm so sad, and it drives me to painful places, clearly not giving somebody a mazel tov for being drafted um, to play baseball is less painful than not giving somebody a mazel tov for getting married, right? If, right. if we had, right. if, the same way that we say, I'll call you up personally and I'll tell you that I feel good for you, but I just can't understand my hands are tied. Could the shul have said, we're so happy for your personal accomplishment and we feel so good for you and the rabbi will call you or whoever the, the, the shul president will call you to which you mazda personally, but understand that a matter of policy, we cannot send out a mazda announcement for mm-hmm. this. Or you say, well, yeah, it's like really cool. And then I was eight years old. I dreamed of being, I think, by the way, I'm sorry to be that person. I think that a lot of this is a whole bunch of men who seriously harbored in their own hearts and minds dreams of being drafted major league baseball <laughs> and this is like vicarious wish fulfillment and therefore they are extremely sensitive to being told that the celebration of this accomplishment in any way might be kind of problematic but that is my um, <laughs> and now that i know you're a sports case. person i wish we had done a deeper dive into jews and sport jews and baseball specifically next time next time 
I was at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown yesterday with my children. I'm still oh. wearing my, my baseball hand snap because my nine-year-old is an absolute Yankees fanatic. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Schwartz, there, there's so much more. I, I honestly wish we could talk for, for several hours more, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have to call it. Um, but thank you so, so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I, I feel very, very good that this one's going to engender a lot of feedback, which I'm very excited about because uh, we want to really hear from, from everyone because this conversation was, it gave me a lot to think about. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dr. The, the Schwartz. The only one who's more happy than you when my conversations out in the world and gender lots of feedback are the principals of my high school who just <laughs> love I'm when sure. I get out there in the world and <laughs> perfect well we'll have them on next time as well so we can we can all get involved here <laughs> thank you so much Dr. Schwartz and of course as I said the conversation does not end with us please everyone please 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 be in touch with us shoot us an email at talkingtachaspodcast at gmail.com and of course join the conversation on our Facebook page Talking Tachas Podcast. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Schwartz. You're very, very welcome. It was a lot of fun.